Open your Bible again to Ephesians chapter 1. My hope and goal is that we will finish down through verse 14 as we complete what Paul has made known to us as he wrote under inspiration of the Spirit of the activity of all three persons of the Godhead being involved in our salvation. We're going to see the Spirit's part in making application of the work that Christ accomplished and the Father purposed, which began at the first chapter here. This whole paragraph, or this long sentence that works itself out into a couple of paragraphs in Ephesians 1, began by telling us that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then one by one, we've seen what Paul has written, how he highlighted some of the blessings that have come to us in Jesus Christ. So let's just rehearse those again quickly as we read down through a part of this paragraph beginning in verse 3. Verse 3 tells us we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He has predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ unto himself. He has made us to be accepted in the beloved. He has redeemed us through his blood, which has resulted in our sins being forgiven. His grace has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, and he has made known to us his finite creatures. He has made known to us the mystery of his will, which he purposed, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth, all together united in the Lord Jesus Christ. That gets us down to verse 11, where we're going to start this morning. But before we start there, I wanted to give you the words of Curtis Vaughn. As he summarizes all of these verses, especially verse 10, he said, It is the ultimate destiny, or the ultimate destiny of the universe now rests in the hands that were once nailed to the cross. That's verse 10. In Christ Everything is going to be united. Everything is going to be brought together. And the Lord, in grace abounding through wisdom and prudence, has made this known to me and you. That puts everything in life in perspective, doesn't it? That keeps our thoughts from just spinning out of control and spiraling out of control when we see how sin has ravaged the world in which we live. That's what's wrong with the world. We realize that. Sin against the holy God. What's wrong with the world is not that we need more government. Not that we need better laws. What's wrong with the world is sin has destroyed the creation of God. But there's hope. There is great hope because in the end, everything we sang it just now, creation is groaning. In the end, creation itself will be brought into the liberty of the sons of God. And we have all of this told us very succinctly in the 10th verse. We need not become overly anxious. Jesus Christ will be glorified in the end. He will be recognized as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth in the end. Those who now question, those who now disregard, those who now even mock and scorn him will one day be brought into the number of those who laud him as Lord. But we're told in the scriptures that for many, that day will be too late. That recognition will be too late. They will then be under the justice of God. And so we pick up here in verse 11 in which we're told I think I said this last week, but one of the greatest expressions of the sovereignty of God in all the Bible is in verse 11. 
Verse 11 says, In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of mercy. That's your God. It's my God. The God who is not frustrated. The God who is not overcome. But the God who, according to this verse and many others like it in Scripture, is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice what Paul says, and this is the first the first point, is again, in him, in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Notice how all of these blessings that Paul told us in the third verse have come from Christ, how they are reiterated one by one. Everything is to be found in Jesus. If you are to be redeemed from your sins, you will be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. If you are to have an inheritance, that inheritance will come to you in Jesus Christ. That's the way all of these blessings have come to us. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Everything about this opening few Verses of Ephesians is pointing into the glory of Jesus Christ. And we're told that the plan of the Father lies behind it all. We're told that He is the preeminent one to which everything is pointing and in which everything will find its ultimate end. So, what can we make of this inheritance that is to be ours and that is ours in verse 11? In him we also have obtained an inheritance. Some of you have inherited things from your parents, or you will. You're, you're intimately acquainted with what this word means. Let me give you the definition of Noah Webster as, as he gave it to us in his original dictionary, the 1828 edition. He says, this is an estate derived from an ancestor to an heir by succession. Or the reception of an estate by hereditary right. Inheritance. To get something because of a relationship that you were in with someone who has gone before you. That's the basic understanding of an inheritance. And we are reminded by these definitions that it is by an ancestor or someone in relation to us that has gone before That has now left this to us by hereditary right. And notice again what Paul says. As Christians, we have obtained or we have received an inheritance. And again, this is something that is already ours, but has not yet fully come to its ultimate completion. Something that we enjoy already, like all of these blessings. We have been given a small taste of some of these things here and now, which will become much more full in the dispensation of the fullness of the times and the consummation of all things. So our inheritance here is based upon our adoption as sons. We once had no heritage. We once had no inheritance. But now, because of verse 5 and the truth that is fleshed out in all of Scripture, we have received the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, and that according to the good pleasure of his will. This is what Paul says in another place, perhaps even more clearly, in Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then what? Then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Of all of the descriptions and definitions that the scripture places on a child of God, don't overlook this one. 
There are many that are great and glorious and encouraging and helpful that feed our faith and our understanding of all that we have received at the good hand or by the good hand of God. But don't skip over this one. Again, Paul says it this way in Romans 8. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What does that mean? Every good thing the Father has is given to Jesus Christ. Can we agree with that? Let's take it a step further. Every good thing the Father has is given to Christ and all of his sons and daughters. There is nothing that he has withheld from us. Both of these statements alone are mind-boggling, to be an heir of God, but then also a co-heir or joint heir with Jesus Christ, His own beloved Son, in whom He is well pleased. We saw in recent weeks how being adopted into the family of God and having Jesus Christ as our elder brother, then the same thing can be said of believers. We are his beloved sons and daughters, and he is well pleased with us because of the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. The inheritance that Paul speaks of has a a rich biblical understanding. You can't read the Old Testament without understanding this inheritance that the Old Testament people of God, the Old Covenant people of God, We're privileged to have. Years ago we went through the book of Joshua. And we saw there how this inheritance was divided up by lot. And how all of the people received a portion of their inheritance in a land, by the way, which was flowing with milk and honey. In a land where there had already been orchards that had not only been planted but were bearing fruit. The Lord having driven out the peoples and he brought his people in and said, here, this is yours. It's good. Enjoy it. This is the inheritance that is pictured here in this 11th verse that Paul speaks of. There is an allusion to all of that Old Testament inheritance of the people of God. But there's a great difference. There's a vast difference. You and I as being a joint heir of Christ and heirs of God are not looking for a parcel of land. We have a much greater inheritance. We are looking to receive everything that Christ has to offer. Full forgiveness of sins. Hope. Do you realize how many people in this life, people that you will see this week, people you will converse with, perhaps members of your own family who just are living without any hope? Because everything to them is bound up in this life, in this sphere of life. And if that's all there is, then there is no hope. But because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, we are not like all these pitiable men, right? We have a hope that is steadfast and sure. We have a hope that is new every morning and has been renewed to us Every morning, everything that Christ has, we are given in him by our good and gracious father in heaven. So there's no wonder why Paul begins this 11th verse by saying that it is in him. In Jesus Christ, we have been given this inheritance. We have obtained it or we have received it. To obtain or to receive this inheritance, we have received something that we could have never secured on our own. It's been freely given. And it's been given to us according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Here's another mind-boggling thought. God who has worked and is working everything according to the counsel of his will. It accords with that for us 
me, you, redeemed sinners, to receive an inheritance from him. To receive good from his hand. So we have to ask the question in verse 11. Who receives this inheritance? Who does Paul have in mind? And I do, and I bring this question up only because of where Paul heads in verse 13. Let's read those two verses. Excuse me, let's read verse 12 first. He says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. In every verse except verse 10, there is a reference to we, us, or ours. If you just glance down at the page, you'll see it. Beginning in verse 3. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blemish, blame before him in love. And that runs all the way down, save for verse 10. All the way down into these verses that we're looking at. Who is Paul talking about? There are some that Paul, there are some who say Paul is only speaking of believing Jews. Up to this point. That's the context in which they frame this whole portion of Ephesians chapter 1. But my question is, just with one verse. Is it not true of all believers that we have redemption through his blood? Or is that true only of believing Jews? It's true of everyone. Everyone is saved by, if they are to be saved, everyone is saved by the redemption that has come to them through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So... All of these references from verse 3 down to this point must refer to all believers of all time, past, present, future. These are the blessings that we have been blessed with in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, applicable to every believer of all time. And I bring that out just to say that Paul does something different when he gets down here into verse 12 and 13. He says this in verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted. So he seems to be making some type of distinction here now. After this all-inclusive language, he begins to make this distinction that he will really go to much greater detail in in the second chapter the difference between the Jew and the Gentile in this middle wall that has separated them that he says is dismantled by the gospel as it concerns salvation. And what he means there, if you skip over to the 11th verse of the second chapter, he says, remember, he's talking to the Ephesian Gentiles Remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a description. Gentiles prior to the making known of the mystery of God in the gospel, how, notice the description, without Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, 
strangers from the covenants of promise, and having no hope without God in the world. If you keep reading, Paul is going to say in more detail what he says in short here in verse 12 and 13. That that middle wall has been dismantled and removed. He would say it this way to the Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. But all who are redeemed are redeemed in Christ by the shedding of his blood. So back to Ephesians 1.12. He says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. He seems there, at least in that reference in verse 12, because of what follows in verse 13, to be referring to himself as a Jew and all believing Jews up to this point, that they were the first to trust in Christ. And then he ends this by saying to the praise of his glory. But then he qualifies it in verse 13 by saying, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. No longer, Paul says, does this inheritance that we have been given in Christ have a particular national identity. The same inheritance that the Jew has, the Gentile has. And that's a, that's a feat of marvelous and miraculous grace in and of itself. That Gentiles have been grafted in. The nations in, saw, in the Psalms that can be glad are populated by Gentiles. Let the nations be glad. Why? Because now Christ is for them too. And really you see pictures of that all throughout the Old Testament. And people like Rahab and Naaman. All of these outliers, which are just pictures of the grace of God extended beyond the borders of national Israel. And once that, that middle wall has been chipped at with the hammer under the old covenant, in the new covenant, it's completely done away with. We see that in the book of Acts. We see it with Peter in Peter's life, how the Lord gave him a vision, how he went to Cornelius, and how he was told there that there is nothing common, there is nothing unclean. But notice, none of this happens to Jew or Gentile without these Words that are scattered in these verses. Trust, belief, and sealing. Salvation comes to the Jew and Gentile alike by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting. In the very context in which our salvation is attributed entirely to the word of God, our own responsibility is also described. So here we have that age-old tension, once again, between the sovereign working of God. You can't get around it in verses 3 through verse 10 and 11, but we have the responsibility of man Right next to it. Our mind logically says if one is true, then the other can't be. Is that the way your mind wants to deal with this? <laughs> it's the way my mind wants to deal with it. If A is true, B cannot be. But when you read the scriptures, first of all, realize you're a creature. You have a finite mind. The things of God are higher. The ways of, God's are, of God is higher. The thoughts of God are higher. And in the wisdom and economy of God, he has from his perspective made known that salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. But that salvation call goes out to all of mankind, calling them to trust, calling them to believe, calling them to come to Christ. 
Mankind is responsible for whether or not they will believe. And hear me clearly when I say this. Election does not and will not save you. Faith in Jesus Christ saves you. I read this this week and it was helpful to me. I've never read it before. You think of the purpose, the economy, the decree, whatever it may be, of the sovereignty of God is the blueprint. But the blueprint is not the house. The house still has to be built before you have a house. What we're told in verses 3 down through 11 is the blueprint of salvation. This is God's own thoughts relayed to us, revealed to us. But yet, all of that being true as it is, the blueprint is not the house. Man has to actually come to Christ, confessing his sins, receiving Christ, believing upon Jesus Christ, appropriating by faith the blood of Jesus Christ. If you will be saved, you will come to Christ in this way. Therefore, proving your election by God. Mysterious? Absolutely. Come straight out of your Bible? Absolutely. So we see this in verse 12. Paul says, we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And by the way, that's the second time that we've read this. And it comes at the end of the section that deals with everything the Son of God has done to secure our salvation. Just like verse 6 ended with the praise of the glory of his grace after the unfolding of the plan of God had been laid out. Then it ends in the same way in verse 12. The Son is to be praised for His work. But notice these things in verse 12 and 13. Let's just go to verse 13. In Him, you, you Gentiles, you Ephesian Gentiles who are now believers... You also trusted after you heard the word of truth. After they heard the word of truth. This gives priority to gospel ministry. The gospel of Jesus Christ simply must be preached if anyone is to be saved. Why do we support the work of missionaries that we've never met? Some of them, our feet will never walk where they walk. We can't speak the language they speak. Why do we support that type of gospel ministry? Because if any man, if any woman is going to be saved, it will be through the preaching of the gospel. Anyone in any place in the world can observe the heavens. The sunrise, the sunset, the mountains, the sea, whatever it may be. And they can gather from that, that there is an all-wise, powerful creator. But that's where their knowledge ends. If they are to know of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, it will be because someone has gone and someone has shared with them the good news of salvation. And they have done so indiscriminately. We have a parable in our Bible that teaches us the parable of the sower. We get so involved, and rightly so, it's there for us to study about where all of these seeds land. And sometimes we miss over, or we skip over the fact that the seed was just being sown everywhere. Was the sower irresponsible? Why didn't he just sow on the good soil? Where he knew, logically, there would not just be a springing up. Where he knew it would be protected from the birds of the air coming and devouring it. Why wasn't he more wise in his sowing? Well, the scripture says there, the sower went out to do what? To sow. 
We must do that work. And all the while know that the results are in the hands of an all-wise God. Sometimes that ministry of the word will be snatched away. Sometimes the birds of the air will come and devour it. Sometimes there is an initial excitement. Sometimes there's an initial springing up. Sometimes every sign is pointing in the right direction, but let the heat of the day come. And all of that fades away. But none of that negates the responsibility of Christians to preach the gospel. That's what's embedded here in this 13th verse. In Him, in Christ, you trusted after you heard. What did they hear? Not some formulation of man. Not some Americanized form of Christianity. Not some form of what some call, and I just lost the phrase, um, therapeutic moralistic deism. Not some something of that regard. Not something that is formulated to garner a positive response. Not something that is exalting the worth and the glory of man, but something that is exalting the worth and the glory of Jesus Christ and details that He, the Son of God, left heaven, came to earth, born of a, of a woman, of a virgin, humbled greatly. But He grew in stature with God and men, confounded, the teachers of his day when he was only 12 years old. And at the age of roughly 30, he began a public ministry where he preached and he taught, he rebuked, he served. And at some point during that ministry, he set his face like a flint to go to the cross of Calvary because he knew that these things had been prophesied of him. And that he was the son of God in whom the sins of the world would be taken away. He went to the cross willingly. He suffered. He was crucified. He had thorns placed upon his brow. He had nails piercing his hands and his feet. He was given sour wine to drink. He was mocked. He was spit upon. All of these things happened to him. And these are the details that we preach when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because all of these point to the fact that there was this specific time at Calvary when the Father made the Son to be the very embodiment of sin. That's why all of those strange things happened at Calvary. Darkness at midday, graves being opened, all of those just mysterious things that we read. They came to Jesus, they looked at him and said, there's no need to break his legs, he's dead already. So Joseph took down his body along with Nicodemus, they wrapped it in linens, prepared it for burial, placed it in a tomb, and then three days later, up from the grave he arose. With a mighty triumph o'er his foes, he arose a victor from the dark domain, where he lives forever with the saints to reign. He arose. That's the message of the gospel. And we go and we preach this message to the nations, to the masses, to our neighbors, to our children under our roof, whomever it may be. Because everyone needs to hear it. We are not to be discriminant as to who we preach the message to. Aren't you thankful whomever preached the gospel to you did not discriminate against you in your current condition? Aren't we thankful that they did not deem us as unworthy to hear the message? You've got a lot of cleaning up to do before you can hear this good news. You've got a lot of work. You've got a lot of good deeds to do. You have a, a lot of repentance to do. You have a lot of... of the begging and pleading for forgiveness from those around you that you sinned against. But yet, in God's good time and grace, the message of the gospel to every believer in this room came. We heard it. We believed it. We trusted in Christ. 
The same thing that was said of the Ephesian Gentiles is said of us in him. You also trusted when after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom in Jesus Christ, in whom also having believed. Now, Christians are often designated rightly so as believers. What are we believing? We believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that He came to this earth. He died for our sins. He was punished in our place. He died as a substitute. He bore all of my sins. Made full payment for my sins before a holy God. He appeased the just wrath of God against me. I believe it. I believe that he was rose that he was raised from the dead. That he ascended back into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. These are the things that we believe about him unto our own salvation. Notice Paul calls it the gospel of your salvation in whom you have Believed. And then the language changes again. The language changes from Paul saying we, you. Now he says our. Our. You were also sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. So let's look at the work of the Spirit. The Bible qualifies it as a sealing. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So before we talk about the sealing work of the Spirit, let's see the three ways in which the Spirit of God is designated here. Paul calls the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of promise. Referring to it was the spirit that was promised by both the Father and the Son to come as the helper. But secondly, Paul says that he is the one, not just the spirit of promise, he is the one who seals. And then thirdly, he is the one that guarantees our inheritance. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So what's the Spirit's function in our salvation? He takes the things of Christ, declares them to us, woos us into himself, And once belief comes, then there is this word Paul uses, sealing, which again comes up, I believe, in the fourth chapter, verse 10. What is this mysterious work of sealing that the Spirit does for us? Well, first... By using the terminology sealed, Paul is referring to at least the real, authentic work of the Spirit of God. In Paul's day, someone in authority would have a signet ring with a seal on it or a sign. They were passing on a message or they were writing a proclamation. They would take that ring, they would press it into wax, put the wax on the letter, roll it up and seal it. So that when it was received, whoever is receiving this letter could look at the seal and see that yes, this is authentic. This is the real thing. When the Spirit of God comes into your life, 
verses we read out of Romans chapter 8, he is bearing witness with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. What we receive when we receive the Holy Spirit of God is no counterfeit. What we receive when the Spirit of God applies the things of Jesus Christ to us and we believe it, we trust, we hear it with with a new heart, with eyes that now can see and ears that now understand. It's the real, authentic salvation. Not some perversion of it. But it's the real thing. The Holy Spirit of God is also called in other places in the Scripture the Spirit of Truth. There is no error in what He reveals to us. And so Paul says, once you have believed, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You have the real Spirit of God, which signifies to you and to me that what we have is the real salvation that God has authored for us. But then if we go on with this idea of Sealing Not only does it authenticate our salvation, it shows us that we are now in the possession of the King of Kings. To have the seal of the King impressed upon you implies His ownership and your servitude. Having the Spirit of God come into my heart and into your heart as believers in Jesus Christ, not only is our salvation authenticated, it is also shown that we are now in the possession of Jesus Christ. Not only the lover of our souls, but the redeemer of our souls. But then the Spirit is designated in a third way in verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Well, you might say, well, didn't Paul tell us back up in verse 11? We've already obtained this inheritance. It's ours. Yes. But we don't yet have it fully. What Paul is speaking of here in verse 14 of the Spirit's work or operation is he is the guarantee of our full inheritance. The word guarantee here means down payment. You can think of it this way. Anytime you put a down payment on a house or whatever it may be, you're giving what's called earnest money. You're paying towards the balance, but just a small portion of it. That's the right way to think about our reception of the Spirit. We've been given the real thing, but just a portion. And this portion, or this down payment, guarantees our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession The redemption Paul speaks of here in verse 14, I suppose, to be the full realization of redemption. The full glorying and basking in no longer by faith, but by sight in who Jesus Christ is. This is the full and ultimate redemption of the purchased possession, which for every believer is an absolute certainty. But don't you know by experience that there are things that happen in this life that cause you to doubt and wonder? Things sometimes just seem to be heaped upon you. And you begin to think thoughts. It's like, is, am I even Christian? Have I believed on Christ and to the saving of my soul? If you ever have those kind of thoughts where you wonder, can, can I, being a real Christian, struggle with this kind of sin in my life? Take heart. If you weren't Christian, you wouldn't care about the struggle with sin. 
you would glory in it. But because there is now inside you the Spirit of God, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, the Spirit and the flesh are lusting against one another. There's a war in your members. And that's as it should be for now. Because when we are saved, our sin nature is not immediately eradicated. It's not immediately removed from us. That's what makes hope, hope. We're yearning and looking forward to that day and time when sin will no longer be a reality. When it is totally removed. Where there is no longer the the realization of it in my heart. That's why Paul would say in Romans chapter 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death or this body of sin? That's why he gives all praise to Jesus Christ there. Jesus Christ is the only one. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of the Holy Spirit of promise here in verse 14 is the down payment of our inheritance until we are realizing fully the redemption that is ours as being the purchased possession. Don't miss those words. As a believer in Christ, you are not your own. You have been bought at a price. You are his purchased possession. I hope and pray that that doesn't rub on you wrongly. I pray it's something you glory in. That you have a full realization. That you are in possession of the King of Kings. And he has paid the highest price for you. He has shed his own blood for you. And in this you hope now rightly. In this we have a little taste of our inheritance which is to come more fully later. Is this a description of you? Is this what the Spirit of God has done for you? Has He sealed you? Has He authenticated your salvation, shown it to be real? Has He shown that, yes, indeed, you are in possession of Jesus Christ? Is He guaranteeing your salvation? I can say, if you have come to Christ believing, turning from your sin, then this is a proper description. Let me deal with one more thing before I before I close. And I'm, I still got a lot of time. <laughs> 55 minutes. There are some who deal with these verses who make the sealing of the Holy Spirit something yet future. And you've heard of the second blessing. The second manifestation of the Spirit. This sealing of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with the gifts of the Spirit. Something totally different. This is the gift of the Spirit that is given to you upon your conversion, upon your repentance and faith and belief and trust. The Spirit of God is gifted to you. This is not a reference to the gifts that may or may not come to you later or that are endowed upon you at the time of your Conversion. In these two verses, 13 and 14, all eyes are on faith, belief, trust. That's the authentication. If you have faith in Christ, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You need not look for something else. You don't need to look for some manifestation of the Spirit, some charismatic gift. Faith itself, if you have it, has secured for you the gift of the Spirit of God. And so we get to the end of this, and for the third time, to the praise of His glory. 
John Stott wrote a sentence, and I'm going to close with this sentence. And he's referencing here the beginning in verse 3 and the end in verse 12 and the three times over that we are told to the praise of the glory of his grace. He says, everything we have and are in Christ comes from God and returns to God. He purposed it. We experience it. In turn, we praise him. Comes from God and returns to God. It begins in his will and ends in his glory. Why why has God saved you? Why has he saved me? There's lots of ways we can answer that question. But somewhere near the top of the list, if not at the very head of the list, is under the praise of his own glory. All kind of benefits trickle into my life because of the salvation that is mine in Christ. But that's not where we start. We start to the praise of his glorious grace. Father, we are thankful for the grace that you have caused to abound toward us. We're thankful, Lord, for the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the sealing of the Spirit that has come to us, authenticating our salvation, bearing witness with us that we are indeed the sons of God that has embedded within us the ability to rightly and truly call out to you as our Father in heaven. We thank you, Lord, for this reminder and declaration that we are your purchased possession. Jesus Christ has shed his blood so that we could rightly be called the sons and daughters of God. We thank you for adopting us into your family. According to your own good pleasure, certainly you saw nothing in us that merited this great work. But because of your amazing grace, because of your mercy, you have drawn us with cords of love into your family. We give you all praise and glory. We extol the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our friend, our elder brother, our Lord, our Savior. All glory be to him. All glory be to the Lamb that was slain. We pray it all in Christ's name and unto his glory. Amen.